This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, the podcast that, like the postman, always rings twice. I'm Scott Phillips, and with me, as always, is Dr. Anirban Mahati. G'day, Doc. Good day, Captain. How are you again? I, I'm very, very well. How are you? I am awesome. See, he says again, because we're supposed to pretend this is in two weeks' time, but we did give it away a couple of weeks ago that this is a pre-recorded podcast. So this reco- podcast is recorded exactly 90 seconds after the last one we did. For you listening, it's about two weeks. Assuming that the scheduling has worked properly. If it hasn't worked properly, this could be out whenever. Who knows? Cyberspace is one of those wonderful, endless things. But in theory, this will come out about the 19th or so of July. Meanwhile, on the 19th of July, where are you going to be, Doc? 19th of July? Yeah. Oh, well, I'll be on my way back. I'll probably be in okay. Milan. Actually, I'll be probably, on 19th of July, I'll be in Hong Kong. Oh, beautiful. I've never been to Hong Kong. you believe that? Um, I don't even think I've been to the airport. I've been to the Hong Kong airport many times. Actually, <laughs> Hong Kong is a nice, interesting city to visit. Okay. I, I would give um, my recommendations to go visit Hong I Kong. I will put it on my list. I look forward to that. I'm going to be on the way home from Birdsville via Adelaide, mate. So about now, I think I'm going to be in Marie, which is about halfway between Birdsville and Adelaide, just on the corner of the Birdsville track and the Udendada track. Um, hopefully by now, I'm going to be having a really good time, although... About 10 days into a holiday with my beautiful wife and my lovely six-year-old son. So depending on how well that's gone, either having a great time or the family can't wait to get home. We'll find out. We're on a road trip and it should be a lot of fun. I think it'll be a lot of fun. By now, we will have seen Midnight Oil play live, which is my highlight. They're going to play the last night of the Big Red Bash, which is why we're going. So Woo-hoo. hopefully that'll be that'll be a bit of fun. Mate, we're pre-recording this, as I said, because we're both away. But due to the miracle of modern technology, the wonders of the internet, as you mentioned a couple of weeks ago, we are delivering this podcast specially for our listeners. And this is a special mailbag episode. We love mailbag. I don't think it's any surprise. We love the mailbag episodes. Um, we love mailbag in general. It's a really good chance to get to hear from our readers, our listeners, um, to find out what you care about, what you want to know about, what you want to tell us about. And quite often we can talk about stuff that we love and we do because we're that way inclined. But we would much rather, frankly, because we know you're listening, we appreciate it. We'd much rather talk about stuff you want to hear about. And so we've combined a whole lot of mailbag. And we're going to get through as many as we possibly can in a single episode. Should we get on with it, Doc? Let's do it. Value stocks. Markets. Stock market. Index. Share market. This is Motley Fool Money. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. All right, mate. The first question we've got comes from Arpit. Now, Arpit hit me up on Twitter mm-hmm. and he said, hi, Scott. Love the Motley podcast. Listen every week. Hey, hey. As a young investor, this is 28, so I hate him immensely because I'd love to be 28, but I'm <laughs> unfortunately, I'm, I'm at least 29. Um, as a young investor, your tips have helped me get started on building my investing knowledge, which we're very excited about. There is nothing, I don't think it's anything we like better, mate, than getting some people started on the, the road to investing. I think it's even, even done you know, mediocrely. Investing regularly is just such a hugely powerful benefit. And if you do it well, you make even more money out of it. It's a great way to set yourself up for a comfortable retirement. I, I'm you know, happily jealous of people who start early. Oh, mate, That's, mate. This is such, there's no substitution oh. to a time. I would. I think I've said, I said in this podcast last week, I said at some point relatively recent, I know it was another podcast, I said I would pay, if, by the time I get to 55, I would willingly pay a million dollars to go back to being 22 again. Oh, yeah. Just just sheer, for, for the life experience and, the, and getting to start again. You know, we all knew... I knew I should have started early. And I, my high school teacher told us to start early. And I still didn't properly get started early enough. Very, very frustrating. My daughter is 11. 
she started? Well, well, I'm getting her to read books, and and you know she wants to do write a blog. Oh, cool! Right? An investing blog. She, well, so, you know, so, so I'm, I'm, I've got to re- start reading on a book called Gr- uh, Growing Money for Kids. Nice. Right. And, and she really finds that interesting. Actually, the first set of questions were all behavioral questions to figure out what type of investor you are. I actually oh, that's found that very, very interesting. Cool. So, so anyways, if she ever does a blog, then it will be interesting. Mate, we'll host it at fool.com.au. Oh, okay. That sounds like fun. We don't pay all that well, but she, I'm sure she'll do it for the fun of it. <laughs> All right, let's go. Mate, this is, we haven't even, I haven't even got the second question, the second sentence of this question. This is like a tangent. Massive tangent. A huge All right. tangent. As a young investor, your tips have helped me get started on building my investing knowledge. My question for the podcast would be, what advice do you have for investors in considering the role of a bond ETF compared to cash in their portfolio? I've had the opportunity of saving, living at home with the parents, and have saved, and I won't, oh, I'll say the amount of cash just in case it doesn't want me to, um, as a house deposit or savings. However, due to a change in work, and new training for the next few years, I'll be in a stable role to set down roots. Should I keep this cash untouched to buy a house later or look into options such as a government or corporate bond ETF? I'm interested to know what your advice is to investors with cash uh, in this falling interest rate environment where savings accounts uh, give less and less. I have other money invested in stocks and ETFs to grow and add outside this deposit money. Thanks, as always. Love what you guys do. Arpit, that's a great question. Lots and lots of detail there. So, He's saying I've got I've got a I've got part of my portfolio already invested in growth, mm-hmm. but I've got some cash on the side that I want to keep or, or I want to earmark for a house deposit. Mm-hmm. Cash I'm not getting much from. Maybe I should be looking into a bond ETF or either a government or corporate bond ETF. So an ETF is an exchange traded fund. So he's saying I want to get a bond fund, trade it on the ASX. Should I put my money there rather than cash if I want to buy a house in a couple of years? So that's a that's a pretty good question. I'm really glad he's got separate uh, portfolio growth kind of going on in p- another part of his portfolio. That's pretty cool. But what do you reckon, dog? What should you do with his money? It's a decent decent sum. What should you do with that money while he's getting ready to buy a house? Should he have it in cash? Should he have it in shares? Should he have it in a in a bond fund or, or something else? So the interesting thing is that if you like again, it depends on what your horizon is, right? If you're mm-hmm. looking to buy in a couple of years, then. I don't know. I would say that you know, if you want to d- use that as a deposit, I wouldn't put it. Actually, personally, I wouldn't put it in the stock market largely right. because it appears to be too short a window. Like we basically said three to five years is the window Correct. you want to have. If because you put, if you put a, you know, pick it up, if you put 100 grand in shares in 2007, a couple of years later, you'll probably sit around, what, 60 grand? Yeah. That'd so be, so, 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 so those sort of unfortunate things can happen. And right. if you have time on your side, then that's fine, right? But, you know, you don't want to be, you know, you don't want your house deposit mm-hmm. to, you know, fall by 30% or whatever it is, 20%, you know, and th- that was like, you know, I'm just assuming it doesn't happen 40%. But yeah, again, sure, sure. Um, but still, so, th- so that's number one. Um, no, but, but if it is like five, five years plus that you're not intending mm-hmm. to buy now and you want to buy like five years from now, then mm-hmm. I would really consider actually investing at least portions of that. That's, that's that's number one. Number two is bond. So, I mean, while deposits, savings are not paying much, like maybe you're getting 1% now if you're mm-hmm. lucky. Actually, you're probably not getting 1%. Oh, maybe a turn deposit, you might get one and <laughs> yeah, a half. Well, if yeah, lucky. maybe if, you're, yeah, if, you, if you put it on like a seven month something, yeah. like apparently seven months is the sweet, <laughs> sweet spot. Um, bonds are not going to pay you much either, right? I mean, with the rates mm. going down, mm. the bonds are also not paying much, right? I don't know what the Australian government bond is, but probably around 2%. Maybe. Under 2% at the moment, apparently. Under 2%. New issues anyway, right. yeah. It's a new issue if you buy and you, you get under 2%. I mean, it's slightly better, but and and bonds are, of course, you know, if the Australian government bond, I would say, is, is basically near risk-free, I would say, or close to risk-free. Um, you could buy other bonds. 
But if you want to juice the interest, you'll have to basically mm-hmm. buy, you know, you'll go closer to the junk bond territory, right? Which is, which is, <laughs> which is basically risky. You could get 6 7% from yep. a junk bond, but, yep. um, you know, or, or, you know, poorly rated bond, you know. Um, yeah, so I, I don't know. I wouldn't actually venture into the bond mm. uh, territory. May, yeah, I'd just put it in a term deposit probably is what I would do if, if my time horizon is two years. So that's the mm. best. I, I know it's not the... Probably the answer Arpith was looking for, but... Um, no, I think it's a good one, mate. I think it's a good one. I'm going to add a couple of things just very quickly. I completely agree with you, mate. I think anything less, less than five years, if, you're, if your date is fixed, if your house purchase date is fixed, you want to be in cash. If you know you're going to have to or want to buy a house in two years from now, that's simply not enough time. Maybe the market goes up 20%, maybe it goes down 20%. But if you know that on the 19th of July, 2021, you want to buy a house... You don't want to be in the position of, of, of having some, some capital loss, even if it's only temporary. If you have to or want to buy at that specific point, you don't want to have to cash out your shares at the worst possible time. So I agree completely with Doc. That being said, if you think it's two to three or four years, maybe maybe five, depending on how things go, I actually agree with Doc. I would completely, I think, invest it absolutely because if it's worth 60 in two years' time, chance are in three or four years' time, it's back to 100. Maybe in five years' time, it's back to 120. And so, mm. you know, over the long term, we know that shares have traditionally added value. We can make no promises. We can give no guarantees. But we're pretty confident, Doc and I individually and together, that, um, you know, over time, you will gain by investing in shares. And so that is still the best, to my knowledge and in my view, way to, to build your wealth. But this is not necessarily a wealth building question. This is a best place to put my cash until I buy a house question. Mm. On bond funds, you need to be really, really careful. So the thing about bond funds and bonds in particular is unless you're going to wait until maturity of the bond, the price itself fluctuates while the bond is, is I'll, call, I'll call active or live. That's probably a better term. Um, so let's say there's a 10-year government bond and it's issued today. Now, in 10 years' time, I'm going to get back the exact amount of money I put in, as long as the government doesn't go broke, but it won't, um, plus the interest, what they call the coupons, but the interest over that period of time. So that's basically, think about it as a term deposit. The problem is between now and then, the bond is going to trade at the prevailing price, and that can be meaningfully higher or lower than the face value. So if you were, if you if you took a hundred dollar bond today, there's no reason it couldn't trade for ninety five or ninety eight dollars in two years time. So you actually still may, even if you get a couple of percent of, of interest or coupon as they call it in the trade, um, you actually may get less than the face value for that bond in a couple of years time, depending on where interest rates go in the meantime. So that's a really really important thing to think about. Bond again, if you hold a maturity, you're fine. If you're not going to hold a maturity and you want to sell it, and an ETF by definition is a fund of bonds that you're probably never going to act directly sell, the bond fund is always going to be worth the cumulative value of the bonds in that fund. There is a very real possibility, I don't know about probability necessarily, but possibility that'll trade below the face value of those bonds. So don't consider bonds, unless you're holding them for maturity, to be fixed value investments. They are certainly not. They're probably going to fluctuate less than shares, but they will still fluctuate. So you need to be a little bit careful with that. I think... Given the choice, two years' time, if someone asks me what I should do, I'm going to be boring and say, you know what? It's just going to be term deposit, cash in the bank. Yeah, you won't get much in terms of return, but your capital is all but guaranteed. That's a pretty good place to be. Motley Fool Money. Financial advice for real people, not trust fund hippies. Sign up for the newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Mate, from bond ETFs to overseas investing, a question from Maximus. I don't know if that's his name, but let's, let's assume it is. Maximus says, love the banter and economics chat, Scott and Doc. Thank you, Maximus. He says Matt actually cheers Matt. So oh, it's at the bottom. Oh, okay. Yeah, so oh, there you Matt. go. His Twitter handle is Maximus, but mm. Matt, we'll, okay, we'll call him Matt. Mm. Um, maybe he wants to be called Maximus. 
We can call him both. Maximus <laughs> slash Matt. <laughs> Maximat. I'm I'm moving on. Um, It's an international equities question time. It seems the regulators in the US are wary of the big companies, Amazon, Apple, Google and the like, controlling market share. Do you see any potential government policy around this being an issue for the big players moving forward? Cheers, Matt, or Maximus as I like to call him. Um, Doc, (laughs) you own Apple? I own two of them. And Amazon? Yep. I own Amazon and Google. Facebook is the other one that probably isn't in that list, but should be in terms of the companies that are potentially going to attract the attention, maybe not action, but certainly attention of regulators. Over the next five or 10 years, how do you think about the potential for regulation or uh, regulatory action when it comes to market power, uh, anti-competitive actions? How do you think about big tech when it comes to the competition concerns of the regulators? Also, I think that's a really interesting question. So there are multiple there are multiple threads here. So one thread is about um, competition, right? Mm-hmm. So are they basically hurting competition? Mm-hmm. Um, maybe yes, maybe no is the answer probably, mm-hmm. right? Are they actually causing, um, uh, you know, prices for consumers to actually go up? Mm-hmm. Actually, the answer for that is probably no, mm-hmm. right? So I think on, on from a consumer point of view, the the dominance of things like uh, Amazon has actually been beneficial. Yeah, I mean, yeah, the price hugely of beneficial. Gmail's free. Amazon selling products for cheaper than they've ever been. Right. It's hard to argue these. Uh, Facebook is free. I mean, yeah. Again, you argue about ads and stuff, but but hard to argue these guys are creating consumer harm. Yeah, they're not crazy because and and their very presence actually. I mean, you. Could, you could make the argument that the very presence that there is an app store, for example, has enabled all these various apps. I mean, the app right, store being right. there has actually enabled all these things like Uber and all those things that we use today. Again, so, the podcast app you're probably using right now doesn't exist without an app store from an Apple or a Google. Exactly. So I think that's the I think that's the thing. So uh, to me, it looks like that a couple of this things. It goes back to, you know, big tech and taxes and all mm-hmm. those sort of It's a very complicated subject. But... Um, my own personal view, this is my personal view, is that I think there's going to be regulation. There's going to be more regulation mm. there, but I don't think the regulation is going to be such that it's going to be, say, okay, you need to break up Amazon into X number of pieces because mm. you are doing these, these, these nasty things. Yep. So I think it, that's unlikely. And it's uh, it's also, I mean, there's a little bit, of, I don't want to get political, but you know, there's a little bit of a thing. These are crown jewels of the US, mm-hmm. right? And the Americans are not going to break up their own crown jewels because this is how they're dominating the world, right? right. right? Nobody goes and dominates, nobody goes and changes, okay, this is how I'm going to dominate the world. And I'm going to, okay, break them up so that they don't dominate the world, right? Okay, I mean, so geopolitically, you, you think there's some, there's some kind of political slash geopolitical angle that says, hey, if we keep these guys big and strong and dominant, yeah. it stops the Amazon, uh, sorry, the Samsungs of the world or the... Huawei's of the world or whatever from from getting a foothold. Yeah, I mean, how do you stop? How do you basically destroy Huawei in one day? You basically Mm -hmm. tell Google not to give Android, (laughs) (laughs) right? And Huawei is in big trouble, right? Right. right? So, so I think that sort of that sort of works. It works. It's it's big, huge market dominance, a huge geopolitical Mm -hmm. power. Mm -hmm. So, I don't think that's going to happen. What I do think is going to happen is you know the various cuts and stuff that they take, for example, like the Apple App Store and the Google Play Store. I think those are going to come down over time as as more and more apps and services are launched i think they will by virtual regulation or competition well i think they might my guess is to make the regulators happy they're just going to reduce the cut and say okay fine and this is going to take less money show they're listening yeah show that they're listening yeah okay okay. i think the bigger risk is i think there's going to be privacy regulations Mm -hmm. and there's going to be data regulation there is already data regulation facebook and google aren't you 
I think this is true for all, right? Okay. Facebook, Google. I mean, you know, uh, Amazon is a huge, uh, huge uh, owner of data, right? I mean, mm-hmm. Amazon knows more about customers than probably <laughs> Google does, right? I think Amazon has a huge wow, of shopping, particularly. Yeah, yeah right. Amazon has a huge shopping business, mm-hmm. right, and then huge ad business because mm-hmm. of that. So I think all of these guys are going to be asked a lot of questions about data privacy and where the data is stored. Individual countries are going to say, okay, you got to store the data right. in our country and things like that. So I think those regulations are bound to happen um interesting so yeah that's my view so i mean you know am i concerned about them investing in if you like the company i, I think the mm. answer is no if they even mm. if they're split up i think like you know if you split up actually i would say that if you split up amazon mm. you probably get more value than you currently get that I would agree. be my guess <laughs> and the last big split in the u.s was at&t the telco in the early 80s i want to say and the individual component parts of that went on just to stunning, stunning value creation after being split up. It's it's not exactly the death knell you might otherwise yeah, assume. Yeah, so I, I think I'm not really worried about it. Like I said, on two, on two of them, I, I, I don't own Google for other reasons. Mm-hmm. But. I'll, I'll only add my thoughts, mate, which is largely, again, we, we're agreeing a lot recently, which is That's very uncomfortable. It is. Very difficult. Um, <laughs> I will say, so what, what I do know about, uh, I've been listening to this, a great Planet, Planet Money is another podcast, and listen to ours first, and then listen to theirs if you've got time, but if you get there, there's a great three-part episode they did on the changes to the way competition law is being thought about in the US. Um, to Doc's point, most competition law in the Western world is featured, or is focused, sorry, on consumer harm or consumer benefit. Um, that's certainly been the way that a lot of the ACCC decisions have been made over the last 10 and 15 years. Um, the US is now making some early, I would say, say it like it's a single entity, but there are some in the US making some early um, noises around changing that away from consumer benefit to the benefit of competition directly. So in this case, you know, is, 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 are the consumers benefiting greatly from Amazon? Yes. Um, the second question that's starting to be asked a little more now is, but what's the impact on other businesses of Amazon's dominance? And it's not exactly a change in policy yet, though the courts are starting to think about these things in a slightly different way. The doctrine that has held sway since, what's it, the 70s, I think, mate, um, is now just being is being questioned. And so to some degree, to the extent that changes, that presents a greater, I won't even say threat, but a greater impact on those companies, if if the if the pendulum swings back away from consumer and back to straight competition, then that would change the way the courts and the regulator might think about something like an Amazon or an Apple slash Google App Store. Certainly, Facebook with with WhatsApp and Instagram as part of that family. Um, I though agree with you completely, Doc, in the sense that some degrees, if these are great businesses being split up. I would bet. I think. I think I'd bet, and probably even a decent amount of money, that if they're split up, they'll probably go into greater rather than lesser things um, as a result of the split than they probably are going to do now. If you separate Amazon's web services, for example, away from its own business, or the retail business, if you were to split Instagram and WhatsApp back away from Facebook, um, I don't know how you'd split the app stores away from Google and Apple. But in any case, I think the component parts are probably going to end up being worth more um, than the market's currently estimating anyway. So I'm not too worried. I think it's. I think it's. It's a, it's a non-zero possibility, but I'm certainly not worried about it. Doc? Agreed. Oh, dear. Let's move on. <laughs> Get more Motley Fool money advice at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Mate, got a question from Dane. And Dane, well, he's, he's a nice bloke, Dane. He starts saying, love the podcast, gents. Man. It's nice that these people are just objectively and voluntarily telling us how much they well, appreciate mate, what know, we do. You know, we love Dane. We do, we do love Dane. Dane, we love you, mate. Thank yeah, you for listening yeah, and thank awesome. you for writing in. We really appreciate it. The fact you said you love the podcast has absolutely nothing, probably everything to do with the fact we mentioned your question. No, I'm kidding. We'd ask, we'd, we'd, we'd feature the question anyway. We're just happier that you love us. It makes us feel good. Dane says, West Farmers appears to be dramatically changing its business strategy and is now interested in the resources sector. 
Noting mining is not their core business, do you see this as a risk for West Farmers moving forward? Cheers, Dane. Now, for those who don't know West Farmers particularly, well, you probably don't know the name. And the last couple of years, you've probably noted as the company that owned Coles, and it did for a little while until it spun that off. It still owns uh, Bunnings. It still owns Officeworks. It owns Kmart and Target. It has, for the longest time, had interests really across the waterfront. It's had chemicals businesses. It's had, in the past, some coal businesses. Uh, it's owned an insurer for one period of time it owned. Um, it's it's the old, really, really old school style investment conglomerate where you've got a, a group of people at the board level whose job it is to allocate shareholders' money to the best possible ideas, the best possible areas of investment. And most recently, that was Coles. Um, they've made a couple of pitches, and Dane's alluding to this, once for a lithium miner and once for a rare earths miner. It missed the rare earths miner, Linus. But it looks like it's going to do, is it Kidman Resource thing it's going to buy, the, the lithium mine or lithium um, hopeful? This is not exactly core West Farmers business on one level. On the other level, it kind of, if it would probably say it's core business investing, not necessarily operating any of these businesses. Woolies is a, Woolies is a supermarket retailer, is a supermarket retailer. It happens to other businesses, but Woolies CEO is, is the head shopkeeper. In West Farmers' case, they've never actually been the head shopkeeper. They always had a Coles MD managing director who was responsible for Coles. So there's always been a bit of a disconnect. But Dane is right, Doctor, say that Coles has been predominantly a retailer for the last decade or so. So is this a move away from their core business? And how do you think about West Farmers now? I know you're not a huge West Farmers fan, but how would you think about West Farmers in the context of them maybe casting a wider net than they have previously? I don't know. I'll just say the West Farmers wants to be BHP. <laughs> <laughs> BHP plus Kmart. I'm not sure what that uh, BHP. So the combination of BHP plus Kmart plus Bunnings. I don't know. <laughs> now, West Farmers, they talk about lithium. They talk about the electric car kind of boom. And, and it's a pretty seductive kind of story. But these are the guys who've traditionally been really conservative. The kind of West Farmers was literally West Australian farmers. They were kind of farmers cooperative, then became an investment company. They've held some reasonably sleepy. Their their um their website actually their, their promise is satisfactory returns, which is not exactly reaching for the stars. They're not too hypey about it. But a lithium miner, I mean, yeah, electric vehicles are coming. But is, is this smart anti you know kind of um anti cyclical kind of buying at the best possible times, or are they getting a bit too big for their britches? Are they changing the fundamental business? If you own West Farmers, what would you think today? I, I don't know. Like, I mean, when the strategy changes dramatically, it, it is mm. always a, it's a point of worry. <laughs> like, you know, are you trying to do too much to actually right, juice returns, right, right. right? That's the thing. And also, it's a question of shareholder base to some extent, right? I mean, if you were yeah. buying um, <laughs> West Farmers because right. you wanted to get, you know, your 6% dividend because, you you know, you could get that rent from mm. Bunnings and things like that or whatever that's flowing through to them, um, I don't, this seems risky, mm -hmm. and I don't know whether the risks justify <laughs> the rewards in this case. Um, well, let's get another way. It'd be the same as a lithium miner buying a supermarket. Like It, it is literally that that different, right? It's a, it's a whole different course of business. Yeah. You can't imagine a whole lot of lithium miner shareholders are, are in it for a 6% yield from yeah. coal supermarkets. Uh, I, I mean, uh, I mean, I mean, this this company has the balance sheet mm. <laughs> to afford to right, buy a few right, things. Right. So that's the difference, right? But... Do they have the capability? Do they have the people? Do mm, they? Mm. I mean, are they any better at finding lithium than somebody else? That's I don't thing, know. Right? Well, I, again, but again, I, I, the only thing I would say is West Farmers aren't going to find lithium. They, they're probably going to let Kidman run as its own business. They're hoping that Kidman, being run by professional managers owned by West Farmers, so this isn't again. It's not like Woolworths. It doesn't become part of the Woolworths kind of DNA. It sits as a separate business, kind of owned by the West Farmers Group. They believe they can get a decent return from the business itself. But the same, the same questions still apply, don't they? Even if they don't make it part of the core business, are they so sure this is a really high-quality use of shareholder funds? 
Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> you know, again, yeah, mm. I, I'm not. I would, I would say, you know, whenever this sort of thing happens, you know, I'm, I'm not thrilled because it, it, yeah, it's a strategy change for a business that, as you said, whose returns are not to shoot the lights. Right, out. right, right. Stated goal. They're, they're, exactly. When they promise satisfaction, they offer satisfactory returns. I kind of love the understatement, but then that's the sort of business you expect to be run conservatively and well, probably for income. Maybe it beats the market. Maybe it kind of roughly runs in line with the market. Yeah, you're almost not. You're almost certainly not going to get that buy in lithium mining. You're either going to probably win big or lose big. I guess it's hardly. You're yeah. not going to get a moderate return, are you? Yeah, like in my growth portfolio, there's no chance of ever West Farmer, <laughs> you know, making, you know, showing up. And if I was running a dividend portfolio, right, right, uh, then yeah, and that's probably if you do run a dividend portfolio, and you had West Farmers, you got to start thinking. Well, hang on, if well, they're going to buy I want these, that? right, yeah. they're going to start buying these things that aren't necessarily going to be big cash generators. They're going to be hopefully. Oh, look, it could, be, it, could, right. it could be a big sink, right? Yes, Money yes. sink. Or or it could be wonderful. That's the other thing. I think we should we shouldn't be too negative necessarily on the idea of lithium. Maybe it is the next big thing. But either way, you kind of West Farmers are moving decently up the risk curve with its purchases. Absolutely. Real money advice from real people. Not just a couple of dicks with a Porsche. Get more at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Mate, this is this is probably. Oh, do I want to say this is my favourite question ever? It's my favourite. Was it even my? It's probably my favourite opening sentence to a, to a question we got. Got a question from Sagar. S A G A R. Hopefully, I'm Sagar. 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 Okay. Leave it. Jeez. Leave it to me. Then. I'll do it. To, yeah, you do. Question from <laughs> Sagar. There we go. Thank you. Oh, my apologies. I don't deliberately mis- mispronounce these things. I, I, do, I do take it seriously as much as we have some fun. Um, so thank you for picking me up on that, Doc. This question starts. I've listened to every single one. Of the 157 podcasts to date, and I love the podcast. That is pretty darn amazing. Either that or it's lying. Is it really possible to listen to 157 and still love it? Well, <laughs> maybe you're that darn good. You know, who knows? <laughs> I'm not, mate. I'm assuming you must be. <laughs> Let's move on. I had a question for the both of you. I'm a dividend investor. I was a dividend investor member, sorry. So one of our services run by Ed Vesely, our colleague. I'm a dividend investor member since 2016 and more recently an Extreme Opportunities member. And that's the service that you run, Doc. Mm-hmm. I have invested on the recommendations from the Motley Fool since 2016 and I've been very happy with the service. Oh, is this one of your relatives? <laughs> Definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to guide my parents to also invest in shares. However, they seem to struggle with the idea and have a preconception that it's too high risk. They'd rather invest through overseas banks, e.g. the State Bank of India, which pay interest at 7 to 10% for fixed-term deposits. Could you please explain the risks associated with investing in overseas banks? Full on. I love the finish. That's perfect. This is, this is probably the, the perfect question. You know, first you ask, you know, you, you said that you've, you've read everything, you've listened to everything. 157. 157. Even you didn't know probably that you didn't. <laughs> I was about to say that, but I had no idea. I, I was kind of about, that's, that's kind of coming out three years. That's about right. But I, I didn't, I wouldn't have guessed. No, that's impressive. Mate, I'm going to give you first go at this. Hmm. Um, I, I don't claim to know a heap about overseas banks. Seven to 10% in fixed term deposit sounds pretty bloody attractive, but I'm tipping there's got to be a catch. There's a catch here. So, uh, so, so, like you, if you if you live in India, mm-hmm. you you could leave your money in a term, the equivalent of a term deposit right. in, which would be called a savings account or something, um, in in say State Bank of India or any mm-hmm. other bank, and you could get anywhere between seven to ten percent based <sighs> on the term that you've got. That's right. Pretty impressive. Right. The Commonwealth Bank here would probably give you one <laughs> percent. Right. Today. Lucky. Yeah. That's right. So why is that? Right. And and. <laughs> 
this actually this is a really good question because mm-hmm. I have lots of friends, you know, because you know I come from India, mm-hmm. um, and people, you know, they would look at the house, the property, and everything. Oh, money's growing, right? I mean, seven percent. If it grows at ten percent, your money's doubling every seven years. Well, that's right? kind of the average return from the stock market. If I get it for cash in the bank, I'm, I'm there. Why would you do it? Well, right? Exactly. And, and the answer for that risk free, risk free, right? And and well, it's, I would not say it's hundred percent risk free, oh, but but uh, uh, because you know the banks are risky. But State Bank of India, for example, would be bailed out. But it's, it's basically government, uh, half government owned. I would okay. say. Okay. So the, the government would bail it out. Um, but let's assume it's risk free. But here's the catch: the catch is that what about inflation, right? I mean, inflation mm-hmm. is so. Is it real versus it is just inflated growth, right? Ah, now, the old in, nominal versus real. Okay. Not, yeah, nominal versus real. So so in in nominal terms, you're getting that. Mm-hmm. But if you bake out in inflation, and again, inflation numbers are very hard to come by in mm-hmm. most developing countries, right? So, for example, uh. the current government has changed the way inflation is, is being <laughs> calculated. I'm going to assume to reduce it. Uh, well, I'm not going to go into again. I, I hate going into politics, <laughs> uh, la- largely because I don't know who is listening to what and who, <laughs> and from which country I'll which okay. country I'll get banned from in- entering. Um, uh, you know, in these days of Good social point. media. Good point. But moving on. But 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 the point is that basically you can always say there's no agreed upon way of measuring inflation because it's right. very hard right. to measure inflation in a place like India, right? Uh, uh, because just how spending happens. You know, a lot of spending in cash. Informal economy, right? Okay, yeah, yeah. a lot of informal economy. But, but it's still fair to say that inflation is probably around somewhere between 6 to 10%, oh. right? So if I'm getting 7 to 10% in the bank and inflation is 6 to 10%, I'm pretty much... You're going, not making it. You might nowhere. be actually. You might be going nowhere to losing money. Wow. Okay. Right. But but it's it's one of those funny things in in thing, you know people might own a property. The property price doubles every mm. you know like ten years. <laughs> but you think you're very rich That's today. Right. When you go to buy stuff, like I mean you know you, you know, I can't. It's still very expensive, mm. right? It's, things still appear expensive, but so 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 there's that thing. Yeah. So uh, yeah. So especially when immigrants come from countries like India, and they, they right. you know it takes you really need. To switch your thinking <laughs> to realizing that inflation is actually a real killer okay. of growth of money, right? Yep, and yep, then, yep. and therefore, when you look at these interest rates, you're, oh, oh, this is not the stock market is not real. the stock market is very attractive uh, if if the inflation is low, right? <laughs> so and and what's the, coming out of the real return, right? Yeah. You take your you take your return you're getting in in actual dollars, yeah. what we call the nominal return. Yeah, you subtract the, in, the inflation rate, and you get your, what we call the real return. Yeah. So yeah. So yeah. So that's all things. You know. So basically, that's it. Looks like a high return, but it's actually not a real high return in in terms of. Uh, now tell me, if I lived in Australia though, and I invested my money in an Indian bank, yeah, and got seven to ten percent, then bought it home here, I could live in a country with one percent inflation, invest at seven to ten percent. Wouldn't I still be okay? Uh, no, <laughs> because what would happen over time is um, the uh, the Australian dollar to the Indian rupee, the exchange rate would actually keep keep up with inflation. Right. And in fact, if the economy in India, for example, weakened, um, typically you're actually going to be losing a lot more money than actually you're going to be bringing in. And that's the key, right? So there's no free lunch in investing, no free lunch in finance. Um, maybe diversification is only free lunch as we talk about, but that's exactly why those nominal numbers got to keep in inflation into account. And if you're living overseas or converting the money, it's no good to you if you earn 7%, but the currency deflates by 10, you're actually going backwards. So be very, very yeah. careful. That's that's the reason. Um, I will add to that too, that the shares being high risk, um, I, shares are abs- individually, shares are absolutely riskier than cash. They are absolutely more volatile than cash. You'll never, ever hear us say anything other than that. It is absolutely uncontrovertibly true. But we think it's worth investing anyway, and here's the important part. So uh, for your parents, if they're listening, or if you can maybe uh, share some of this thought, 
over time, if you look at grab, so Google this. If you're at home now, or you're on your phone. Google Vanguard Index Chart. Vanguard Index Chart. Look at it. It'll be a 30-year chart. You'll be able to see very, very nicely what's happened since 1989 to today. You will see some squiggles there. You will see the dot-com bust. You will see the GFC. Plenty of other stuff there. Shares absolutely are volatile. Individually, shares are risky. But the stock market over time has never failed to reach or exceed previous highs. Doesn't mean it's going to happen necessarily. There's always that asterisk. Will it keep happening? We can't know. We don't know. We can't promise you anything. But safe to say my money and Doc's money, quite literally, is that we expect that shares, despite the volatility, will outperform most, if not all, other asset classes over the longest period of time. So I, I understand why there's that concern. My old man, when I was young, would, would say the stock market was a casino because that was the impression that people were given. You see shares going up and down all over the place. The media loves reporting it when the market falls. You just don't always see them report it when the market slowly climbs over time. The Australian market is a hair's breadth away from beating the 2007 numbers, and that's before dividends are included. You include dividends. The market's about 60% higher than 2007. So yes, shares individually are risky. Yes, shares individually and as a group are volatile. My money, quite literally, but also metaphorically, is on the fact that shares will be much, much better than cash over time. Plus, if you get some dividends, they're also getting that nice franking tax benefit if they're frank dividends. So if your parents are in a situation where they're retiring or about to retire or already retired, um, they're getting probably a nice tax kicker as well. You won't get from cash in the bank, either from India or Australia, and you certainly won't get from property either. Doc? I agree. <laughs> You're just saying that, aren't you? Uh, we'll see. <laughs> Motley Fool Money. For more, go to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. All right, let's move on to the next question. Um, we got a question here from, next one's from Adrian. Oh, she says, hi, Scott and Doc. Keep up the great work educating Australians on investing. Mate, if we're doing half of that, Adrian, we are just stoked. That's exactly why we do this podcast. And hopefully we're helping, we're, as the old Motley Fool tagline used to go, educating, amusing, and enriching. If we're doing a bit of each of those, we're doing a pretty good job. He says, I wanted to pick your brains on international investing because I want to invest internationally. Excellent. You often talk about diversifying internationally, but when I look around, there seems to be higher admin and costs associated. Is e.g. brokerage, foreign exchange fees, the daunting W8BEN-E form. Talk about that in a second. Can I get the team's opinion on the best method to acquire international equity? I've looked into the app stake, but I'm skeptical of the fact that I don't have direct ownership, and it is instead through a custodian. That's from Adrian. So, Doc, a few different bits and pieces there. I think we've been pretty clear in past episodes that international investing is a very, very, very smart and attractive thing to do, and we would heartily recommend for almost all of our listeners, with the exception of those for whom currency movements might might be problematic in the short term. But if you're, if you're a long-term investor, I don't think I need to ask you what you think. I'm pretty sure I know that investing internationally is smart with at least part of your portfolio, even potentially a majority of your portfolio. But let's talk a little bit about the best way to do it. So brokerage, foreign exchange fees, and the W8BEN form. Let's start there. We'll get to custodian ownership in a second. What's the best way to invest internationally? Oh, that's a really packed question, Adrian. Isn't it? Uh, yeah. Um, What's the best uh, best way? Well, okay. So best way is to in, in, invest via a broker that is primarily US based. Okay. Um, I mean, most of these US based brokers, for example, I use, and, and again, we have no uh, no commercial relationship with any of these guys. Correct. Um, I I use Charles Schwab. I believe you have Charles Schwab. Correct. 
And Charles Schwab has an office here in Australia. So, I mean, in fact, you'll have a Charles Schwab Australia interface, but it's mm-hmm. basically just linking you to Charles Schwab. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and they are primarily US, their brokerage fees are very low, like 495 is what I pay. Um, there's another one, again, uh, you know, this is not an Australian company. It's it's called Saxo Bank. It's it's one of the, you know, from one of the Nordic countries. I forgot mm-hmm. which one it is. So Saxo, S-A-X-O. Yeah, I have an account with them as well. They're also pretty cheap. Actually, they have, you know, they allow you to trade across 28 or 30 different developed markets. So you could buy nice. in Hong Kong, you know, most of Europe, Japan, mm-hmm. and Australia. And in fact, their Australian brokerage ah. fees are lower than most other brokerage fees, you know. That's in nice. fact, their Australian brokerage fees is lower than American brokerage fees. <laughs> <laughs> so, That's so, then, so, right. there, so there you go. Yep. Uh, in fact, most of my Australian stock buying I have been doing on, on, on Saxo now. Um, so that's that. So there are a lot of options. Most of the local brokers, too, I think NAB Trade and Comsec both give you international access in different ways. Yeah, they give you international access, but they charge you a lot more. They do. So they if, do. if you're not doing it frequently, then you probably don't need access mm-hmm. to a specialized broker who specializes in this. You know, so that you can pay like 20 bucks, 30 bucks, or whatever it is. But if you, if you are going to be buying regularly international shares, then it makes no sense to pay 30 bucks when mm-hmm. you can pay four bucks <laughs> exactly. or two bucks. So if you go to something like IB, which I don't recommend to people largely, IB is interactive brokers, which, mm-hmm. which as a platform, I think it's great for professional people, but it's a little hard for those people who, you know, who want a nice GUI and uh, GUI being, you know, the graphical user interface <laughs> yeah. um, and, and something easy to use, yeah. right? So I would, I would actually, dis- I would, I would um, directly say to people, don't use interactive brokers. They are very good. They're cheap. They are reliable. They're all, all good things. The user interface is awful. I, I've used it semi-regularly for work for the last four or five years and I hate it every time I have to do it. Yeah. <laughs> um, they're, they're cheap and if, you, if, you, if you're of that mind, by all means, have a look at them. They are, they are probably the, the broadest broker as well. They give yeah. you access to almost every international market. So I, I get why it might be useful. Um, I still find it just it just it's just painful to use. And if you're not going to trade super regularly, trying to have to relearn everything every time it's just yeah. too hard. Yeah, they're basically also for like you know, those people who want a fast trading platform and things right, like that, right? right. right? So, so they they're one of the best for that. Yeah. Yep. Um, so, so there are a lot of options. There are others like IG Markets mm-hmm. um, and so on. And Stake so, itself. And Stake. So Stake is a, is is an interesting one. And and he he brought up the question of. Um, uh, the forms so in the forms you have to fill in most places but the mm-hmm. most places like the forms are now pretty much online you just do it once every three years you fill yeah. it up you say hit yes yes no yes no and it's done it's not a, I, I'm it's, it's an extra form and it's a new form and I get people are somewhat um, put off by it I have to say if you're listening to this don't be put off by the WAPN form it's just a form it's one page it's, it's, it's not, easy it, well yeah it kind of feels a bit scary and I get it so I don't want to, I don't want to say to anyone your fears or your concerns aren't well founded except that they're kind of not in reality, right? So I get you know, how you feel about it, how you feel about it. I remember being daunted myself with it. It's not as scary as it might seem. So please, please don't let that put you off. Yeah. Foreign exchange. Okay, so that's an, that's an interesting one. And mm-hmm. that really, again, how that really depends on your brokerage yep. as to how foreign exchange is dealt with. Mm-hmm. There are many, many, actually, there are a couple of different ways of doing this. So Charles- Which is why it's painful, right? There's so many different options here. It's, it's hard to see a straight line to any of us. Yeah, like so Charles Schwab, which used to be called Options Express, and I'm, I'm, I'm doing a detour here. And in the in the olden days, they mm-hmm. had an account. They You could actually transfer money from your bank account to an ANZ account that they owned, ANZ or some other bank account that they owned mm-hmm. here. So you basically did an Australian transfer 
they'll give you the spot rate plus a bit more mm-hmm. uh, overnight and then, then convert it to American dollars for you. Mm-hmm. That's one option. Then when they changed over to Charles Schwab, they basically stopped doing that. I believe that they again started doing it now. Okay. Uh, so they've got, a account, they've got an account locally that you can transfer to and you get the spot rate basically plus a fee. So it's, it's not bad. Um, and uh, you, I've also used other things like Ozforex actually. So you could use a money transfer agent to actually transfer money and then you know what spot rate you're getting. Again, you pay a fee, mm-hmm. small fee per the spot, spot rate. So that's that. Um, exchange rate by all means, it basically means that, you know, again, if you're in this for short haul, it's it's a bit of a problem because, you know, what the exchange rate is the exchange rate. It can fluctuate. Over the long haul, the exchange rate should not really... I didn't say it should not really matter, but mm. uh, maybe it's a wash and maybe you get enough gains that, you know, the exchange rates actually right, don't right. matter in, the, in that case. If you're a long-term investor, it's r- unless you are forced to buy and sell at exactly the wrong time for an exchange rise, over any lengthy period of time as a long-term investor, we're talking about multiple years here, just incredibly unlikely your gains will be mm. wiped out and more by the by the foreign exchange. I would say don't buy it at maximum minimum point, points unless you can avoid it. You don't want to be sending money to the US when the Australian dollar is buying 40 US cents. That'd be madness. Yeah. Um, by the same token, you don't have to wait till it sells back to $1.10 before you go and do it because if you can, I mean, you know, I, I've you've made good money on Apple. I've made good money on Amazon over time. Um, that that you know the exchange rate couldn't fall far enough to offset those gains. So at some level, you know, bite the bullet. Don't let that put you off either. Yeah. The the last one I know a lot of Australian investors get you know thrown off by the custodian type yeah. of arrangement. The custodian. I mean, so you. We're don't kind make, of spoiled here, right? Yeah, kind of basically spoiled because the certificate is in your name. So tell us tell us what happens here, and then tell us what happens in the US. Yeah. So here we basically have this HIN number system, mm-hmm. right? So basically, holder identification, uh, holder identification numbers. Within the holder identification, basically maps up with your stock purchases and basically mm-hmm. you get essentially a certificate effectively saying that you own this stock and that's yours. There's so a- uncon- incontrovertibly the government will say that the shares of Woolworths are owned by Scott Phillips at this address and no matter what happens to my broker, no matter what happens to anything else around the place, legally I'm the owner of those shares as identified by the old, it's called Chess which is computerized holding something something system. Um, the chess system says these are my shares and they will be my shares forever. Doesn't mean the company can't go broke, but I can't be, you know, they're, defrauded. They're, they're mine. They're mine. <laughs> yeah, you can't be defrauded. They don't have the same approach in the US though, do they? Yeah. So in the US, it's basically a custodian arrangement where the shares, if I am explaining this correctly, and correct me if I'm wrong, the shares are held on your behalf, essentially mm-hmm. in a trust. Correct. Right. So the trust basically owns everybody's shares. Yep. Um, so if you simplify, suppose you buy from uh, you know, your brokerages, let's say Charles Schwab mm-hmm. or Saxo, mm-hmm. then Saxo would have a trust arrangement with someone. Mm-hmm. And that trust basically is going to own all the shares that Saxo's you know, customers basically are buying right. or owning at this yep. time. And they're basically held for you. Yep. So now, you, and, you and I both have 50 Apple shares each. Saxo, the Saxo Trust would have 100 shares of Apple. And in their recording system, they would say 50 of those are Docs and 50 of those are Scots. And at some point when I want to sell my 50 shares, they would say, yep, you own those shares, you can sell them. Um, even though the, and the trust will just simply reduce by the total number and they'll take my holding off. Yep. Left with 50 shares that are yours, well, at least uh, are to your benefit, yep. listed as you being the, the, the beneficial owner, but still owned by the trust. Yeah. So, so I, mean, I mean, yeah. So it's not direct ownership. Mm-hmm. Um, the the SPIC, which I f- keep forgetting what the full form for SPIC is, securities something, protection, something insurance scheme. <laughs> I think maybe or <laughs> something, something like that. Yeah. So it's the effectively the SEC's um, insurance scheme. Let's yes. put it that way. 
ensures the value. So it ensures against brokerages dying mm-hmm. and your shares being lost. So first of all, if if you own shares and you have a statement that you owned these many shares, um, those are recoverable in the sense that even if the broker, even if the broker disappears, they're still held in trust. So therefore, you can get it from the trust. Right. And the, the trust should be in arm's length. Number one. Number two is if a um, broker disappears and the trust also disappears, then the SPIC basically guarantees each, each account, not the cash, but mm-hmm. the holdings, right, right, right. up to, I believe, $500,000 mm-hmm. US. Mm-hmm. So it's a pretty substantial amount. And actually, you can have multiple accounts and they would you know, then basically guarantee multiple accounts. If you're, if you're lucky to have more than $500,000, <laughs> you know, go go yeah. ahead and have multiple accounts. Nice problem uh, to have. A nice problem to have. And they would guarantee those multiple accounts up right. to the $500,000 US limit. Um, frankly, I, this has never been a put off for me. I know mm-hmm. I can understand how it's a put off, you know, for like for most Americans, actually, yeah, this correct. is the norm. Right. And that's, right. that's <laughs> and the, the norm thing, right? is the norm. <laughs> so we're comparing against what we're used to here. And I yeah. get that people kind of go, well, it's kind of safe uh, in Australia. So it's therefore less safe in the US. I guess objectively, that, that's kind of true, right? It must yes. by definition be less safe, just just by definition, because there is not that direct ownership. But as you say, almost if almost every Yankee investing in shares is is you know from I don't know Warren Buffett necessarily, but effectively, you know, everyone in the states who owns shares owns them in this arrangement. And so yep. the United States still is you know half the world's capital markets, and the, you know the holdings are insured, and to some degree, when you you know you're not as prickly as you are in Australia, that's absolutely true. But gee, the entire U.S. economy would be impacted if if, if this was to go on a large scale problem. Um, now, you know, you can choose not to take that risk, and that's reasonable. Then again, if you're choosing to invest in shares, I think the, the risk of loss of the shares you buy is probably larger than the, the risk of you being defrauded or somehow losing your ownership interest in those shares. I think I would agree with that. You know, given the insurance scheme, and uh, you know, yeah, <laughs> the probably company goes to zero before. With all the risks you're taking, exactly, yeah. it's probably not one of them you need to worry about. Yeah. I look, I mean, you know, I'll, I'll only echo that. The other thing I will say though is, is to some degree, there is a th- third way second way some other way is simply to buy a an asx listed instrument that gives you that sort of exposure so if you really feel like you don't want to buy shares individually or you do but you're not what you're worried about the risk or the foreign exchange or the holdings or whatever there are some exchange traded funds or etfs on the asx you can buy and get yourself some international exposure it's not as um Direct, I suppose, or not as not as meaningful in terms of individual stocks. If you love Apple but hate Amazon, it's hard to do that on the ASX. Um, but you can buy a, a Nasdaq 100 exchange traded fund, which tracks the top 100 companies' ex financials on the on the US Nasdaq exchange. You can buy an S and P 500 index fund, which gives you the 500 of the largest US companies. You can buy a rest of the world ETF. Um, Vanguard does one called the MSCI World X Australia. There's plenty of options if you don't want to, or you just want to tip your dip your toe in the water to get started, you can do it on the ASX with some of those ETFs. It won't give you the, as I said, the company's specific exposure you might otherwise want. If you want to buy a particular company, um, you can't do that on the ASX easily. But if you want to get some international exposure, you're not yet ready to trade overseas. I get it. I think you should, by the way. But if you don't want to, that's okay. There are ways to do it, including a an ETF like the NASDAQ ETF or a Vanguard SP 500 or a, or a rest of the world, something like that. Value stocks, market, stock market, index, share market. This is Motley Fool Money. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. All right, mate, we've got a question from Terry. Now, Terry asked a question that we kind of take for granted pretty regularly, and we don't tend to cover on the podcast. So I thought we'd take a little bit of a, a little bit of a chance to just kind of detour slightly into the world of dividend franking. Not necessarily your forte, you know about it, but you don't necessarily do it a lot. 
But Terry asks a really good question. He says, hi, guys, and thanks for all your work. I enjoy the show, and I'm a Share Advisor member. Ah, oh, Terry, you're looking after me. Thank you, mate. Uh, he says, the election's passed, so it might seem like this question's not urgent anymore. And it's true, it's not urgent. And I guess it's not, but I still hope you can enlighten me. We'd love to. He asks, what's involved for a company franking its dividend? If it's easy, why doesn't everyone do it? If it's complicated, why does anyone do it? And why, oh, why would any company frank only part of their dividend? This is so franking confusing, Doc. It's very, <laughs> it's frankly confusing. <laughs> Just thank you. Keep up the good work, Terry. Terry, this is a wonderful question, mate. And it's, there is so much, there's so much jargon and rubbish in finance. And even though we try and keep it as simple as we can and explain the terms that we use, we are guilty, like others, of not necessarily always defining our terms. And to some degree, that's because if we defined every term every time, the podcast would be four hours long, we'd bore everyone to tears. At least more tears than you're currently shedding. Um, but it's a really good question. I'm glad you asked it because it gives us a chance to stop, to uh, just reconsider and, and explain a couple of the terms that we use. Doc. Oh, you're putting me on the spot. This is how you want me this, to do it. This is, this is for Ed, but I'll, I'll give it a go. <laughs> um, you know, Ed is our resident dividend. He is. He's the, he's the dividend guru. Um, Maybe we should go and do a guest spot. We should. We Maybe should. We should. All right, mate. What's involved for a company franking its dividend? Okay, I'm going to explain it at a very high level. And if I miss something, please, please, please add. So basically, a company makes a profit 100 bucks. 100 bucks, pays tax on it. 30 bucks. 30 bucks. So 30% now, corporate tax rate, 100 bucks profit. Right. Pays now, 30, has 70 left over net profit. Right. So that's 30 bucks that it pays tax on. Basically, mm -hmm. that becomes part of the franking. Why? Because the assumption, rightly so, is that the shares are effectively owned by share, or the company is basically owned by shareholders, mm -hmm. and therefore the shareholders are making the profit, and therefore the shareholders are also paying tax on the profit. It's basically mm -hmm. like a credit, mm -hmm. right? So, so that becomes part of your franking. So, in 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 the current, if there was no franking, the company would earn its hundred bucks. Yes, it'd pay thirty bucks tax and have seventy bucks left over. Yes, if it paid you that seventy bucks worth of profit as a dividend, which yes. it's entitled to do, you then have to pay tax at your prevailing rate. Yes, and for the sake of the exercise, because I just don't want to do the maths, I'm going to say your tax rate is fifty percent. So you would end up having to pay fifty percent tax on that seventy bucks. Yes. You'd left with $35. And by your ownership interest, you would have paid 35 bucks of tax at your level. Yes. Plus, the company would have already paid 30 bucks tax on the profit already. So, effectively, you would have paid $65 worth of tax on a $100 profit, which seems bit, extraordinary. Bit of a double taxation. Which is exactly why during 1990-something, three or four, I think it was, um, the, the then government, uh, Paul Keating was treasurer, I think, at the time, if I remember rightly, introduced the idea of dividend imputation known colloquially as franking, and it gives you a credit for the tax the company pays on that dividend. So you get your 70 bucks as normal, and you pay your tax, you pay your 50% your, your tax, you pay your $35, and the government says, yeah, but, but what we're going to do is we're going to give you a credit for the tax the company's paid on your behalf. That credit is a franking credit. And so you, the, company, the government says, well, you, should, you owe us 35 bucks, but the company's already paid 30 bucks of that on, on tax, so we're only going to charge you the extra $5. And so rather than paying a full whack of effectively you know, 65 bucks in, in tax, you pay only $35 and you get the value, the benefit of that franking credit back to you. Is that a decent That sign? is perfect. So that is dividend franking. Doc, do you want to do the partly and fully frank or do you want me to do it? <laughs> yeah, oh, I can do that. All right. So, so that, why, what is, what is the difference between partly and fully frank? Okay. So first of all, you can, you can, um, to, to actually pay 
frank to dividend, mm -hmm. you need to actually make profit. Yes. Right. So you need to have made a profit and made, actually <laughs> more than a profit. You actually need to have paid tax. Right? right. And this is, and paid tax in Australia. And paid tax in Australia. Yep. Right. And if you had tax losses that you had baked in, then mm -hmm. you, you're basically not paying taxes for a while. Right. right? So you might make a profit now, mm -hmm. but you might have tax losses that you've made before. Right. Because you've had those tax losses, you could write off the current tax. <laughs> so if you make a loss, you, you can't pay frank dividends because there's no tax paid. Exactly. If you made a profit this year, but you're writing off against last year's tax losses, you can't pay a frank dividend. You can't pay a frank dividend. Or if if you have, for example, in the first year, you decided that you made a profit mm -hmm. and you, um, y you know, you paid tax on that profit. Yep. You didn't pay a dividend. Next year, you again made a profit and you you know, baked sometimes you could actually mm -hmm. accumulate the franked parts, right? Right, and then you can pay actually, you know, in later years that franking out with your with your exactly with your with your dividends. You could also be in a situation where you don't actually have enough franking credit to attach to all of your dollars mm -hmm. of profit because most of maybe part of your profit is coming from overseas and therefore you don't have franking benefits on that. And because you don't have franking benefits on that, you basically get only part of the tax that's paid basically here, or mm -hmm. profit that's earned here in which right, you are able right. to give frank. So part basically, there are many ways in right. which the part basically arrives. So a company, when they pay tax, they, they have what they call a franking credit balance, which is just really the sum total of all tax they've paid <laughs> to the Australian government. So BHP has a franking credit balance. Um, Qantas has a franking credit balance. Woolworths has a franking credit balance. Actually, Qantas probably doesn't. It's made losses for that long. I don't think it's ever... <laughs> Made of money. Um, I don't think it's ever paid a frank dividend. Maybe it has. Um, so Woolies, Woolies is a better example. So Woolies has made a lot of money over a lot of years. It's paid out less than it's earned in profits, which means it's got an accumulating franking credit balance. And it can apply those franking credits to your dividends when it, when it gets paid out. They simply take it from there. They say, okay, we had 100 franking credits or $100 worth of them. And we paid out dividend. We're going to give or apply $30 worth of those franking credits to the dividends that are being paid. They have to reduce that franking credit balance accordingly, and you get the benefit of that franking credit. And as Doc's already said, if you're a company that was, just for simplicity, always profitable and has always had 50% of its profits from Australia and 50% of its profits from the US, just for the sake of the exercise, then it can only really frank your dividends to about 50% because it can only give you – it's paying you 100 bucks worth of dividends for the sake of the argument. Um, half those dividends came from the US, half came from Australia, so that's all positive. But it can't apply any tax benefit from the US because the US government doesn't uh, allow companies to offset their dividends uh, with franking credits. The Australian government does. And so in that case, when they're paying you that money, the dividend, only part of it has attracted franking credits because only part of it has been taxed in Australia. And that's why they pay a partially franked dividend. I would say for what it's worth, a really, really great question, Terry. I'm glad we got the chance to explain it. Hopefully we have done a decent job and not put anybody else to sleep. Um, but part of, the, part of why it's worth talking about is because you know, it, it's not complex for the company to do at all. Um, we do. We would argue that you should absolutely look at the franking credit balance as part of your potential return. But as always, we would say focus on the after-tax return, not the maximum franking credit or minimizing your taxes. We often say you always want to maximize your after-tax return. There are plenty of companies that don't pay a dividend. They've done extraordinarily well. Now, Amazon and Berkshire, chief amongst them, done exceptionally well, never paid a dividend, or at least Berkshire hasn't since 1965. Um, they've done fantastically well. Conversely, there are companies that have paid a dividend that have done absolutely terribly in the meantime. Um, and so, you know, you don't just want to have a company that has dividends. You don't just want a company that pays franked dividends. Um, it's all about how much money you're getting after tax. And a company that pays 1% fully franked versus a company that pays 4% non-unfranked, you still should prefer the unfranked dividend in that circumstance. But look, it's Terry, it's no problem for the company. It's no problem for anybody. It's pretty straightforward. It's all 
basically it's paperwork, but it should be considered as part of your return because it literally is a credit you'll get towards the tax you pay. And if you don't pay any tax, you may just get a refund, which would be pretty cool. Motley Fool Money. Financial advice for real people, not trust fund hippies. Sign up for the newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Lucky last for this holiday podcast while I'm driving down the Birdsville track and you're swanning your way. You're in Hong Kong having, what are you doing in Hong Kong? Walking on the airport. Nice. Okay. You're in transit, are you? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Maybe you can download the podcast where they're listed on the way home. That'd be a special sort of torture, wouldn't it? Yeah. Having listened to me on your holidays. Jeez. All right. <laughs> so we'll, we'll, we'll answer the last question. Last question comes from Andreas. Hopefully I pronounced that one correctly. He says, hello, Scott. Hello, Anirban. I love your podcast as it shortens my commute. Hey, we do time travel. How does that happen? How good is that? Wow. That'd be nice, wouldn't it? That is nice. Shortens my commute. I think he means it makes the commute seem shorter, but maybe maybe he falls asleep. <laughs> maybe, maybe Andreas puts the podcast on, falls asleep for 40 minutes, then wakes up and goes, wow, that was quick. <laughs> Surely not. All right. He says, shortens my commute and I get both entertained and I learn stuff about the Australian stock market. I live in Austria, so I'm far out of your usual range of listeners or customers. That's wonderful. I think that's our first I told you. I told you we have people, fans abroad. Fans might be too much. We have listeners abroad. Fans. Fans? Yeah. Sure? Yeah. All right. He says, I've been investing many years and have, have two questions. First question, coming back to the discussion of cutting the weeds and keeping the flowers. Do you immediately sell stock, which has not run well? But more importantly, how do you know? As we are long-term investors and have to live with volatility, is there any criteria to get this done? So I'll hold the second question, Doc. But the first question, we we talk about the idea of watering our flowers and cutting our weeds. So mm-hmm. you want to make sure you're adding or at least holding the profitable companies and you're getting rid of the one that's, the stuff that's terrible. A lot of people do the reverse. They say, well, that's already gone up, so I'm not going to buy more of that. I'll buy the one that's down. And we would say, generally speaking, you can make money doing that if you do it well, but generally speaking, we prefer to let our winners run to water our flowers, not, not our weeds. But if you know they're weeds or you think they might be weeds, how do you differentiate between a company that's having a rough patch and a company that is no longer worth owning? What's your process for doing that? Uh, that's a great question. Actually, I, I really like this question, uh, largely because also we have, you know, we did some selling recently. <laughs> uh, <laughs> at Motley Fool Pro? Uh, no, at, at Motley, uh, Motley Fool's Extreme Opportunity. Oh, well, so, both actually. At Pro? You've had you've had the uh, the scythe out, mate. You've been going nuts. Uh, well, how uh, how are you making those decisions? Yeah. So uh, this is an interesting question. So so if. You know, as you said, most people, you know, lock in the gains mm-hmm. because it's, you know, you see the gains are up. And, you can't you know, go broke taking a profit, they exactly. say. You can't go broke taking a profit. And then you look at the losses and you're forcing, ah, you know, if I if I take that loss, then it's like I'm acknowledging <laughs> wait defeat. Wait it comes back to where I'm I was. I'm going to wait, wait for it to come come back, right? <laughs> that is such bad, bad, bad investing practice, You, you know, and, and the thing is that everybody at some point has done it. Oh, yeah. So I don't want to even laugh at it because <laughs> no, I've done no. it. Me too. Uh, it, and it's like, you know, and the, and the other, other mistake is to catch the falling knife because it's falling through and you mm-hmm. just think, you know, so here's the thing. Most of the time, investors get into this. This is like investor, and it's it happens to everyone. And I, mm-hmm. I have done it so many number of times, and I tell I shouldn't do it, but I yep, do it. Me too. And the problem is that you recommend a company in a certain thesis. So company X Y Z is going to do A B C, and we think it's going to do A B C over the next five years, and right. it's going to be awesome. We think it's going to grow by a decent rate by opening a new product, going to new geography, selling more customers, yeah. whatever it is. We've got a thesis about why a company is going to do well. Right then. 
some announcement comes after a while, after Oops. you recommended the company that says, oh, that <laughs> thing that we said that, you know, we're going to go there to that, you know, we're going to go to America and, you know, you know, win America. Oh, that's not kind of working. Oops. It's not really working. So the, the first thing, the you know, the problem with the market is very reactive. The market basically sells, mm-hmm. right? Now... The first sign of bad news, maybe the share price is going to go down. I better get out before it does. Yeah. And so a lot of people just get out, yep. right? Now, the, the funny thing is that as an investor, you can very quickly justify yourself, oh, this is maybe a one-off, and maybe it is a one-off. <laughs> and then you say, well, you know, the share price is now down 30%. Right. It's already so, priced into the share price. I've already lost that money. Yeah, it's not going to do well in America, but still an okay company, I think. Well, or, or maybe, you know, because management never is going to say that, uh, <laughs> you know, we are completely stuffed in America, right? They're never going to say that because basically that means their jobs are stuffed. So they're basically going to say, we had this hiccup, this XYZ, this distribution problem, but Appreciate we are working it working on it, we are going to buy a new ERP system that's going to fix everything. Enterprise resource planning. Yeah, yeah, new computer system is a solution for everything, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's the ERP. Is the better, better record keeping and the whole business will be fine. Exactly. We're going to, we have hired all these <laughs> bunch of analysts from uh, Cognizant oh, and all these other companies, consultants, consultants, and they're going to fix the ERP. It's going to fix the problem. <laughs> it's very easy at that point to say, okay, yeah. now you can say, that, well, if they fix the mm-hmm. problem, my original thesis is still valid. Now it's cheaper, so it's okay. Right. Right. And... Maybe it's okay, <laughs> right? But Which is the this Andreas' that, question, right? Exactly. So sometimes, sometimes genuinely, this is a short-term problem. Yes. And the company goes on to greatness. Yes. Other times, this is the beginning of, if not the end, the beginning of a, a reasonably long-term period of mediocreness. Yeah. So basically, I've got a small algorithm now. So, you know, and I felt, I've fallen for, if you have... So, okay. so as you said, if a company says, like, I couldn't get this done in America, mm-hmm. then maybe after six months, they'll say, oh, I couldn't get this done in, a, in Britain as well. <laughs> but my ERP system is going to fix it. And then just they wait, might, just wait. Oh, and then they might say, look, Trust look, us. look, look at Australia. We are doing so well in Australia. She's already done 50%. We are doing so well in Australia and the American market and the British market should be just like, mm-hmm. you know, just like us. And, you know, they just look like How us. They, they want the same things. It should all be great. Just right? give us some time. Just give us some time. And by the way, the share's now half the price. So, so you pretty okay. Okay, this seem pretty attractive. So you could say, then after maybe another six, seven months, another year, they say, oh, but by the way, Australia is also sucking now. We, we can't get it done in Australia either. But right? wait. But wait, <laughs> we are going to fix it. The ERP is almost done. <laughs> the ERP is almost done. By the time the shares are probably down, like down 80%. Now, you know what I'm, what I'm saying in jest, and I, I don't mean, you know, any, I say this in jest largely because that's the only thing you can do to, to if you are in this business to actually continue on yep. because this happens to everyone. Oh, yeah, yeah. And and therefore, you know, I, I, again, I don't mean any disrespect of people who have lost money on recommendations that we have made that have gone down because I'm going to promise them I'm going to make again more mistakes, mm-hmm. right? But, but and, and if you can't laugh at that a little bit, then you've got a little bit of a yeah. problem because it's, it's, this is not going to be your game. Pain is a constant companion as an investor. You need yeah. to embrace it and like, try and have yeah. a laugh. Yeah, and, and, you know, uh, and, 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 and Captain, you can uh, test it the number of times I swear when <laughs> those announcements come out. <laughs> but but so here's, so I have a little bit of a revised thing. And I said, sometimes what happens is if you have a great company mm-hmm. that makes a mistake yep. or a misstep, I think a great company or even a good company with a strong balance sheet mm-hmm. with good management, they, I think, have a better chance of fixing problems because, you know, as I said, they're a great company, they have a great brand, yep. they have a great team, yep. they're the best people, and they have the resources to try and fix it. Mm-hmm. However, 
many a times we would be investing in companies that are not maybe great, right? And you could say that, okay, well, you know, why don't you just invest in great companies? Because sometimes what happens is the opportunities are maybe not in the great companies sure. because they are priced or there are not enough great companies, whatever is the case. Or a business is, is small and growing and might be great one day, but they can't all be great, otherwise they're already priced in. So exactly. we're looking for earlier stage companies yeah. or, yep, yep. Yeah. So like at Extreme Opportunities, for example, if, if we are not buying, you know, the great companies because if we're buying the great companies, they are already great, you know, we are buying what we hope to be tomorrow's great companies, right? right? So if that is the case, then there are going to be these failures, right? Mm -hmm. I think in this case, if they stumble, maybe you need to really give a hard look and see, okay, well, maybe one failure, I'm going to give you a pass and Mm -hmm. I'm going to wait very carefully never to add that failure. At least that's what we know. We try not to do that. Mm -hmm. Is to basically don't double down when they have a failure. It's, you know, it's basically more like being in a penalty box and saying, okay, you had a failure. I want to see you fix it. If after the sin bin, right? Yeah, okay. <laughs> after the sin bin. If you can't fix it, yep. then maybe you need to be, you know, just be brutal and say, well, <laughs> I don't think you have it in it to, to actually mm-hmm. to get to greatness. So so that's why, you know, we, we took this, you know, we have recently sold a few and we said, well, you know, we really believed in your promise. We really believed in your story. You told us many times you're going to get things done. Um, and we've just become tired of hearing, sorry, it can't be done. <laughs> yeah, uh, and therefore, maybe you, and, and here's the thing, right? If, if it has gone down so much and if they actually fix the boat, there is a time to actually get mm, back right. onto the boat. And right, maybe right. you've lost a few, but more, more often than not, things that are not working actually do not work and then continue failing. Mm-hmm. So that's something to keep in mind. So I, I distinguish between, again, a, a, you know, a great brand, like for example, I'll, I'll use an example. So if, if uh, Blackmores has a problem, it has mm-hmm. a big brand behind it that gives and its balance sheet and therefore gives it the opportunity to fix things. Right, right, right. And, and therefore, I would be more patient with a Blackmores mm-hmm. than I would be with uh, something that's not a Blackmores that's hoping to be a Blackmores, right? right? So that's the distinction I try to make. You said the same about Microsoft before too, that for all of its missteps in the last decade or so, it had a great brand, a great balance sheet, some really nice recurring revenue with its Office and Windows systems. It had plenty of – it had bought itself time both with, with cash flow and, and, and a balance sheet that was super, super strong to find its way out of its problems, compared to a company that maybe had a year's worth of cash and was much smaller with no brand recognition, try and dig yourself out of a hole in that position is much, much, much harder. Yeah, and, and like something that you say, right, if you buy a bunch of basket cases, mm-hmm. <laughs> if you buy a basket of basket cases, <laughs> you actually could do well, yes, but you yeah. remember the basket should be involved in basket cases like Microsoft, <laughs> right? If you've got a basket case right, like right. Microsoft, then I think you that basket is actually going to over, if held over a long time, it's likely to do well, mm-hmm. right? So if you have, you know, you, you put those basket cases together, but they better be big brands, good, strong balance sheets, and then I think you're going to do well. But I, I think if you have that same thing with, if you have basket cases in extreme opportunities land, they're probably not going to do well, <laughs> yeah. would be my guess. Yeah, I think that's right. And look, there are different approaches to different investors. Some people are deep value investors that actually do reasonably well at this sort of thing. Um, I'm not one of those. Doc's not one of those people. We're just not built for that. We don't have a necessarily a, a finely tuned sense of it. Um, there are value investors around. You know, people will say, Warren Buffett says, you know, buy stuff when it's cheap. And it's really important that, you know, Doc's talk about great companies. Buffett has said, you know, buy companies when they're, oper- on, when they're on the operating table. But he actually says buy great companies when they're on the operating table for exactly the reason that Doc's pointed out. And I think that's that is absolutely the difference. Um, I've certainly, I mean, I laugh. I've, we've, we've made our share of mistakes at Share Advisor and certainly my personal portfolio, trying to buy things that look cheap. And they just simply got cheaper and cheaper and cheaper because the businesses weren't high enough quality and they weren't getting the job done. And it's very hard to pay a low enough price for some of those businesses. So even if you feel like you want to add more because you think you're a value investor and that's great, just be just be a bit careful and make sure you're adding to something that really does have fundamentally underlying strength and can recover, rather than something that's going to keep you know fall and keep falling. I've it's probably it's probably a mistake. I've, I, you know we've we've beaten the market by hanging on both directions, and I'm probably going to as an investor be too slow to sell. 
because hopefully, and so far at least, on balance, that's been that's been it's worked for me on both sides of the ledger, right? When I've been slow to sell something, it's fallen, it's come back sometimes. Other times, it's fallen and kept falling. So I'm probably, you know, I'm happy to to absorb that. And you talk about a basket of basket cases, Doc. I think as long as your portfolio is is big enough to absorb the strategy that you want to put in play, put in place, I should say, that can work. Um, that being said, I'm absolutely pretty sure if I'd sold early for those failing companies i probably would have done better for, for my members of my own portfolio so this you know as doc said we're all we're all still learning we're all trying to get good at it um i have a bit of a value bent sometimes and that's probably not great they're the ones i tend to look at something cheap and go oh it's so cheap i either i can't justify selling it or maybe i should buy it um that's been probably a net loss i think for our members so maybe there's some lessons there for me as well i'll make a call out to two, two of our colleagues right you know, you know both kevin gandia and and ryan newman so kevin works with uh, me on um on Extreme Opportunities, Ryan, mm-hmm. on, on Pro. You know, a little bit of disassociation sometimes, you know, helps. And, you know, they, 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 they are, you know, quick to point out that, you know, oh, what do you think about that for that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's not really working out part of your thesis. Huh? If you go back right, to right, a right. year back, look at your thesis. That was your thesis. What do you think now? So I think that sort of, you know, a little bit of that perspective really helps. So, you know. It's, I, so, it's so important, is it? Because if you're the one who picks the stock, I know for me, I'll say me, not you. When I'm the one that picks the stock, you, you even, even though we know about all this behavior, behavioral traps, it is still really, really hard to separate yourself from the decision. And it's not even, is it ego? Is it commitment bias? Is it preference? Is it some sort of emotional connection? I don't know. Probably all of the above. Yeah. There is just something really weird about if you were the one who pulled the trigger, if you were the one who made the call, it's much harder to sell than someone else who comes on from the side and says, hey, look at that. You kind of go, oh, yeah, fair, fair point. That's a good point. Yeah, I, I think that that's it. Yeah, it's somebody who basically casts a fresh, fresh eye on it mm-hmm. without a little bit of a you know, whatever the, you know, and again, you know, we know that these biases exist, yes. right? We very much know that we read about it, we study them, we tell people about it, we write about it. But you know, yep. it, it's one of those really funny things where even uh, you can know as much as you want to. You know, it's a constant learning process. Yeah, what's well, only a learning process? You actually can't avoid these biases. It is unless you are literally biologically, um, in some cases, have have biological issues that allow you to be dissociated from these things. Even if you know them. You can't train your biology. It's just we're, we're evolutionarily programmed to, to succumb to these biases. Yeah. So you have to fight them. You've got to learn about them firstly because you can't fix them if you don't know it. But you can't stop doing it just because you know it. You just have to continually say, I know I'm doing this. I know I'm feeling this way because of this situation. And so I'm going to put in place systems to, to basically counteract my own natural inclinations, which is really weird, right? You can't become, you can't train yourself to stop thinking that way. You can only train yourself to overcome those instinctive thoughts. Yeah, agreed. I have a good flight back from Hong Kong. Well, fly safe, fly well. I'll, 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 you know, I'll try to do that. Do that. I'll try and do my best to drive back safe from my lady. If you see me on the road, come and uh, wave, say good day. If you want to buy me a beer, feel free. Remember to take that picture of the olive python if you find one. You know, you know why I keep oh, saying olive python. There was this on. picture going around on, I believe, on one one of the social medias, which there's an olive python somewhere in Australia right. that had eaten up an alligator. <laughs> and and you want me to get close enough to take a photo. What was that like, that, uh, some that, people would suggest you don't want me to come back, Doc. Is no, that what you're trying no, to say? No, but think about it. Like the python has basically <laughs> eaten this alligator. I mean, neither the alligator is moving nor the python is moving. This is the best opportunity to get close-ups. Good point. Good point. <laughs> so, and I'm just interested in knowing what's going to happen to the python. Is it going to even survive? You know, how do you even digest the thick-skinned thing? <laughs> I suppose like the elephant, right? One bite at a time. I, I don't know, but... <laughs> These things, are, apparently you can't put a bullet through those, you know. Yeah, they're amazing, aren't they? They're amazing. Yeah, incredible so, so, creatures. So, 
I don't know. So that's why you know that's why this has been fascinated by since since you're going will, to the, the bush, just find one that's eating something. I guess huge. like only one that yeah exactly. <laughs> exactly. Go close and take a photograph. You'll be famous for posterity. Pythons allegedly aren't too dangerous because they constrict rather than rather than poison you. I'll, I'll stay away from the inland taipans and the brown snakes if that's all right. Okay. Yeah. Do that. Should be fine. What could possibly go wrong? Nothing. <laughs> oh dear. I was going to say we'll be back next week. Uh, we, we might Doc will be here next week. <laughs> Assuming I stay long, far enough away from the Olive Python, I will also join him next week. If not, you may have a different podcast host. We'll find out. And frankly, you'll know I won't. That's just the way these things go. That does wrap us up, though, mate. Before we go, don't forget you can subscribe to the Triple M Motley for Money podcast through iTunes or your favourite Android podcast app, if only to find out whether or not I make it back from the desert. And if you like what we're doing, you just want to be nice to us and give me some cheer in my convalescence please give us a five star rating on itunes leave us a review tell your friends we're sure they could do with a little foolish straight talk too and you can get a dose of foolishness straight to your inbox by going to you know this by now www.fool.com.au forward slash say it with me triple m triple m that's it for this week's motley fool money we'll be back next week at least stock will with another dose of foolish insight full on full on The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.